Good afternoon. My name's Ed Crane. I'm uh, president of the Cato Institute, and I want to welcome you to our book forum uh, today. Um, I'm very uh, pleased with this large turnout, which uh, George probably indicates that the fact I was introducing you got leaked out. But, uh, uh, but uh, we are uh, delighted to have uh, the man who I believe is the most accomplished political essayist in America uh, with us uh, today. How, how great a writer is uh, George Will? I mean, his insights are terrific, and his writing is uh, superb. His use of the English language is famous. Um, but he is, he is so good that he justifies a subscription to the Washington Post. Uh, <laughs> what higher compliment can one pay? Uh, in fact, George Will has been uh, writing for the Post as a syndicated columnist since 1974. His columns appear in more than 400 newspapers in the United States and in Europe twice uh, weekly. Uh, since 1976, he's been a regular contributing editor to uh, Newsweek, for which he currently uh, provides a bi-monthly uh, back-page essay. And in 1977, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his commentary in his uh, newspaper columns. Uh, George was born in uh, Champaign, uh, Illinois, which explains his uh, irrational uh, affection for the Chicago Cubs, and went to college um, at Emory, or Trinity College, I'm sorry, in, in Connecticut, and then Oxford University, and uh, got a Ph.D. Uh, in philosophy from uh, Princeton. Um, George uh, served on the uh, staff of the uh, a member of the United States Senate from 1970 to 72. Uh, from 73 to 76, he was Washington editor of the National Review. His new book, in fact, is dedicated to William F. Uh, Buckley. Um, in 1981, he became a founding uh, member of the uh, panel of the uh, ABC's This Week, which is now This Week with George uh, Stephanopoulos, uh, in which uh, George has to suffer the occasional indignity of being on the same panel with the editor of The Nation. Uh, and uh, more re his, he's written three books on uh, uh, political theory, Statecraft to Soulcraft, What Government Does, back in 83, which was, which was George's uh, Hamiltonian period. Uh, the New Season, A Spectator's Guide to the 1988 Election, uh, which was published in 1987, which is interesting. And um, Restoration, Congress Term Limits, and the Recovery of uh, Deliberative Democracy. George was an early and... and uh, avid supporter of term limits, which, of course, the Cato Institute has been as well. And we lost that battle, which we were winning, actually, uh, with a 5-4 to four decision in the Supreme Court, with Justice Kennedy uh, being on the wrong side, as too often is the case. Um, George has published um, some eight collections of his essays from Newsweek and the Washington Post, all so well. But ironically, his best-selling book 
uh, is men at work, uh, the cult of baseball, uh, the, the craft of baseball. <laughs> I'm sorry, George. <laughs> the, uh, which is uh, a book, if you like baseball, and I do, uh, it's the best book written on baseball, and it is full of the nuances and subtleties of the game, and it's a very complicated game, something that the Washington Nationals have failed to grasp. Uh, but uh, but uh, actually, uh, George would be the first to talk about the fact that the uh, Chicago Cubs have been on a 100-year rebuilding campaign, and uh, it's starting to bear fruit, although over the last couple of weeks, the fruit is starting to fall off the tree. Nevertheless, they may well have an insurmountable one-game lead in the National Central Division. And George, you don't know this, but I played ball myself when I a little bit at, at Berkeley uh, when I was in college and, in fact, could have been a major league uh, baseball player, but for the fact that I'm too intelligent to hit a curveball. Uh, no, when, when something's coming at your head at 80 miles an hour, you can look at the spin of the ball or you can get the hell out of the way, and uh, I think I made the right decision. In any event, it's a great pleasure to introduce the premier uh, political essayist of our time, George Will. Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> to refer to me as the premier political essayist in a room containing Jonathan Rausch is an impertinence, <laughs> but uh, I'll take it. Um, it's, um, it's a pleasure to be at Cato to talk about books because in spite of all the hoo-ha about the new media, the Internet, and all that stuff, having trouble hearing? Well... Turn, turn me up, somebody. Anyway, uh, in spite of all the talk about the new media, I continue to believe that not just ideas have consequences, but that only ideas have large and lasting consequences, and that books remain the primary carriers of ideas, and it's the Cato Institution certainly exemplifies this. Uh, uh, Mr. Sample's book on <coughs> uh, campaign finance regulation and on the First Amendment or on what the Republican candidate for president calls so-called First Amendment rights is a major contribution to rolling back this regulation of speech. Uh, Gene Healy's splendid book on the cult, not the craft, the cult of the presidency uh, is a very timely uh, reminder that we invest irrational and dangerous uh, hopes or expectations in the presidency, and uh, I'm I'm very much indebted to Brink Lindsay's book on on affluence and America's uh, the, the transformation of American culture as a result of this. Uh, the book I have I have assembled is a little bit different because I it, it's very light on Iraq and other uh, controversies about the current political agenda. It's more on American history and culture and. Uh, interesting people you meet around the country. My hope was that at a moment when there's considerable argument as to what constitutes conservatism, that people could read this and say, well, that's a conservative sensibility. I tend to believe sensibility precedes philosophy and ideology, that there are really two fairly distinct sensibilities, a liberal and a conservative sensibility. That's why we have two parties. People do tend to cluster. And I hope having read my book about Hugh Hefner and Bill Buckley and the Dust Bowl and uh, uh, the Bakersfield sound in country music, 
and all the rest, people will at the end close the book and say, well, I got it. That's what one conservative's mind playing on a wide range of reality looks like. And I either am a conservative or not, they, the reader will say, and, and uh, it's up to them. Uh, I, I, it, it's, it's a very strange moment for those of us who are conservatives. Uh, we are facing, as the housing rescue bill proceeds through Congress, what I think can be called another prescription drug entitlement moment, uh, during which conservatives either will or will not stand up and be counted. I wouldn't hold my breath. It's a, it's a, it's a moment when, in which the cognitive dissonance of the country, the gap between the rhetorical conservatism and the operational liberalism of the country becomes uh, so discordant as to get everyone's attention. Uh, in the next hour, as happens every hour of every day, the center of the American population will move two feet farther south and west. Didn't cross the Mississippi River until the 1980 census. Today it is southwest of St. Louis, heading for Clark County, Nevada, which is Las Vegas, and Maricopa County, Arizona, which is Phoenix, where everyone in America will live in about 10 years. This shift of the political weight of the country explains why, largely explains why, uh, when George W. Bush leaves office at noon, January 20th, 2009, all of the elected presidents for 45 years will have come from Georgia, Arkansas, Texas, and Southern California. And this tends to give some people the soothing feeling that demography must be destiny and therefore the shift of the political weight of the country toward the more traditionally conservative and indeed libertarian parts of the country guarantees a conservative ascendancy. The problem with that is that also in the next hour, the federal government will, as it does every hour of every day, spend another $193 million on entitlement programs. The country is of a divided mind, and the division in its mind, although constant, has a new overlay which is there is a disjunction in the American mind, I think, without precedent in American history. For more than two centuries, the assumption has been that the very process that produces enhanced national wealth, dynamic market capitalist economy, simultaneously would produce increased family and individual security. Today, I believe, a great many Americans believe that the very process that produces enhanced wealth capitalism on steroids, if you will, of the globalization era, undermines family security. And this is producing, I think, an epidemic of quite irrational apprehension, but an epidemic nonetheless. Rarely have Americans, actually never have Americans been more prosperous than they are today, but rarely have they felt more precarious. And, and this is setting us up for what I would call the cultural contradiction of the welfare state. About 45 years ago, a number of people in this room are old enough to remember, as well as I. Uh, Daniel Bell, distinguished sociologist at Harvard, published a book called The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism. His argument, much bolderized in simplicity, was that capitalism depends on certain social capital of stern virtues, thrift, industriousness, deferral of gratification. The problem is those stern virtues produce wealth, affluence, leisure, comfort, indolence in the end, self-indulgence perhaps, and undermine thrift, industriousness, and the deferral of gratification. That capitalism undermines its own moral prerequisites. 
Something of the sort, I think, may be happening with the welfare state. A welfare state, particularly in the context of an aging population, and given the fact that a welfare state exists to transfer wealth from the working young and middle-aged to the retired elderly, a welfare state depends on a rapid rate of economic growth to throw off the revenues to pay the bills. But a welfare state, by whetting the appetite for security and by giving people a sense of entitlement to protection against the risks of the churning of a market economy and the creative destruction of capitalism, produces a political backlash, a political drive to provide security that is incompatible with the economic dynamism that a welfare state presupposes. Uh, Hence, the welfare state begins to undermine, through its entitlement mentality, its own kind of... um, Uh, its own prerequisites. It also, I think, produces a kind of infantilism on the part of of people by insulating them from the real choices uh, necessary for a responsible society of self-sufficient individuals. Just consider the American savings or lack thereof. In the 1980s, American people saved approximately 10 cents of every dollar of disposable income. In the 1990s, they saved about a nickel. In 2005, for the first time since the Depression, the American savings rate went negative. Today, in this country, there are more than 105 uh, uh, billion uh, credit cards, uh, approximately nine per card holder although this is an unreliable figure because it's based on self-reporting, the estimate is that the average household is carrying $12,000 of credit card debt. It is a generally accepted figure, I think, that about a, that a household debt is now at about 140% of household income. Small wonder, then, that the American people have to keep the party going, turn the homes into ATMs. And small wonder, when you democratize credit, as we have done, which may or may not be a good thing, it is certainly not an unmixed blessing, because when you so thoroughly, with credit cards and Internet purchases and catalog shopping and all the rest, separate the pleasure of purchasing from the pain of paying for it, you are you are setting a country up for a delusional life. Now, I, I used the phrase a moment ago about the welfare state in the context of an aging population. It is, I think, insufficiently understood that if we date the arrival of the welfare state somewhat capriciously from 1935, an enactment of the Social Security Act, Uh, It is fair to say that the welfare state today exists to subsidize two things that did not exist in 1935. One is protracted retirement, and the other is competent medicine. In 1935, retirement as we think of it, a prolonged period of subsidized leisure after work, simply was a luxury of a tiny, uh, economically and biologically, physiologically blessed people in the country. The span of retirement in the 20th century increased from two years to almost 20 years. We simply have no, didn't anticipate any of this happening. And with regard to competent medicine, there was virtually no medicine in 1935. In 1924, 
Calvin Coolidge, the sainted Coolidge, the last president with whom I fully agreed, was, was living in the White House with access to the best medicine the country had to offer. His 16-year-old son played tennis without socks. He got a blister. It got infected, and he died. There was very little medicine could do at that point. It is estimated roughly again, but plausibly, that at least a quarter of the medical treatments now in use, diagnostic, therapeutic, and pharmacological, did not exist in 1965 when Medicare was enacted. We have put in place, as a matter of right and entitlement, we have attached the most rapidly growing portion of the population, the elderly, to the most dynamic sector of American society, the scientifically intensive healthcare industry, as a matter of entitlement, of right. And we're going to pay a very steep price for this. Uh, we also are poised to see in uh, the coming year or two the most astonishing uh, tax increase in American history uh, imposed upon the country automatically by the terms of the Bush tax cut for budgetary and bookkeeping reasons uh, nearly a decade ago. Will Rogers famously said that the difference between death and taxes is that death does not get worse every time Congress meets. <laughs> taxes will get very much worse without Congress doing anything under this, this dispensation. And indeed, you know, it used to be, you could say with some comfort that you know, to listen to politics, you have to listen with a third ear to hear what is not said. And it was encouraging to say that no one was actually calling for the repeal of the emblematic achievement of the 1980s, the Reagan tax cuts, when, going back to when we had 70% marginal tax rates. Well, if you take Mr. Obama's proposals to revert to 39.5 or whatever it is, top marginal rate, and add in increases in the Social Security and the Medicare taxes, and then add in the average top rate in the states, which is 6.5%, you're getting close to 60% marginal tax rates for the top income earners in the United States, who it is politically incorrect but correct to note are the most creative class in the country when it comes to job creation and all the rest. Add to this stew of coming problems that are utterly predictable the fact that uh, we are now have a, a dangerous uh, because confused, emphasis on widening inequality of income in the United States, uh, we are set up for some confusing responses to uh, problems, some real and some not. Uh, there is indeed a widening inequality in income in the United States, and the cure for it, as far as I can tell, is for Americans to drop out of school sooner. Two centuries ago, the great source of wealth in the Western world was land. A century ago, the great source of wealth was fixed capital. Think of Andrew Carnegie's steel mills or Cornelius Vanderbilt's New York Central Railroad. Today, the great source of wealth is human capital, mind, learning, the capacity to handle information. The slogan is a good one that you earn what you learn. What we are seeing from the market is a widening emphatic return on the yield to education. The market is saying at the top of its considerable lungs, stay in school. The problem, of course, is, and I hate to break this news bulletin here today, that half of America's children are below average intelligence, <laughs> which uh, that's very good. You, you, did, you did the arithmetic. You know, if you, 
If you say that on a college campus, they boo you. <laughs> they boo arithmetic. It's quite astonishing. Uh, we are set up for, I say, in the, this is the Hayek room, right? Yes. Well, I, uh, we are set up for what Hayek called the fatal conceit. That is, the belief that government can know and plan the unfolding future and should do so. That is a recipe for what my old and dearest friend Pat Moynihan used to call iatrogenic social problems. In medicine, an iatrogenic problem is a disease or problem caused by medicine. In social life, an iatrogenic social problem is a problem caused by a government attempt to solve a problem. The good news is that uh, while all these uh, indicators are for a a recrudescence of misplaced government confidence, uh, that contains the seeds of its own correction. Uh, Do remember the following. Between 1938 and 1964, there was no liberal legislating majority in this town. 1938, the country responded against Roosevelt and his court-packing plan and brought the New Deal to heel. Between that and the anti-Goldwater landslide, conservative Southern Democrats and Republicans kept the government on a more or less even keel. For two years after the Goldwater lost 44 states, uh, liberalism had its way. And two years, four years later, in 1968, Republicans began the process of winning seven of the next ten presidential elections. The market in politics as well as in uh, uh, economics does seem to work, and there does seem to be a self-correcting mechanism. Uh, I do think the American people broadly remain uh, wise, broadly remain convinced that a benevolent government is not always a benefactor, broadly remain convinced that capitalism does not just make us better off, it makes us in some senses better. They are broadly convinced that when Jack Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, one sensible response is that one thing you can do for your country is to reserve a spacious portion of your own life for which you, not your country, uh, are responsible for. I think most Americans still understand what Milton Friedman meant when he said, take any three letters from the alphabet, doesn't matter which ones, pick them at random. Put them in any order you want. It doesn't matter. You will have an acronym designating a federal agency we can do without. (laughs) I think most Americans still understand what Robert Frost meant when he said, I do not want to live in a homogenized society. I want the cream to rise. And most of all, I think they understand what Ronald Reagan meant when he said, I do not want to go back to the past. I want to go back to the past way of facing the future. It is my understanding of the purpose of the Cato Institute to do precisely that. And I thank them for having me here today to talk about my book. And I am sick to death of the sound of my own voice, and I welcome your questions. Thank you very much. Please do identify yourself uh, after uh, Mr. Will calls. Uh, Howard Wooldridge from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, LEAP. In this century of massive deficits, $10 trillion in the federal level, et cetera, as as you've pointed out, uh, my profession's been at a policy called War on Drugs, Drug Prohibition now. Uh, For 37 years, we spent a trillion 
tax dollars, arrested 37 million Americans as the government threatens you with punishment if you dare step outside the bounds of alcohol, tobacco, Prozac, and Valium. Do you support this policy, uh, or would you end it and go back to a policy based on personal responsibility? Well, I'm, uh, I think today's policy perhaps does not adequately distinguish between the various kinds of substances that can or cannot be abused. Uh, I am not ready to go to a free market in cocaine and heroin and methamphetamines. Uh, marijuana may, raises its own questions about which I have not come to, a, in my mind, a satisfactory conclusion. But it's an open question or should be considered an open question. Claudia Farris, Catalyst Institute for Applied Policy. Hello. I am of the liberal sensibility. Um, but you, sir, are one of my heroes. I, Thank you. To be in, your, in a room with a person of your intellect, I regard as a, as a privilege. Um, I brought my young staff here today um, because they don't know who George Will is. And <laughs> I, I described... I described you to them as a conservative, but a, a person of great intellectual honesty and, and someone whom I regard as important to the debate in this country. Um, my question is, the, I agree with you. I agree with the old way of doing things, the old institutional infrastructure, but you have an underlying assumption that we have a kind of um, fairness uh, dynamic going on, and, and, and I think that, in all honesty, we don't. Um, I, and I, I can already respond to your question, which is, uh, uh, what about fairness? And uh, I should tell you that when I've raised four children, and our rule in the house was that there was a four-letter F word that they could not speak, and it was fair, because <laughs> it, it, it is the source of... Uh, Discord, because we don't agree as to what is fair uh, in social outcomes, but we can largely agree as to what is fair in terms of social policies. I agree with that. I'm not okay. looking at outcomes. So far, I so am good. looking at opportunity. And we do not, we have, um, there's, a, there's a tragedy of the commons going on here, where um, the housing problem arguably came from greed. And, 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 and looking to manipulate the institutional infrastructure that we have. Let us take advantage of these Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, uh, mortgage guarantees. It isn't the individual mortgage or, or E, I can never remember which one it is, um, who's been, who's been um, you know, causing the problem. It's the, the level above that. And bailing out Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, I agree, ridiculous. Who's that going to benefit? Not the individual person who bought the home. But, but, the, the free and open society brings with it cocaine and, and methamphetamine abuse. Well, it does. It, and it, so, so, so the question – okay, you got the question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it is often and um, somewhat misleadingly said that the difference between conservatives and liberals is that liberals believe in equality of outcome and conservatives believe in equality of opportunity. We all understand that equality of opportunity is a much more complicated proposition than we thought. Uh, because uh, the, the, the disposition of social capital around the country as it affects children and their opportunities is, is unequal and, to use the 
verboten word, unfair. Uh, I think the, the liberal and conservative argument is being recast slightly, and it goes something like this. Conservatives, uh, liberals tend to favor equality understood increasingly as equality of outcome and increasingly as equal dependent of more and more people on the government for entitlements, on a common source of benefits. This is justified as a kind of communitarian ethic, an ethic of common provision that unites us and will minimize social strife. Conservatives tend to emphasize freedom and are therefore willing to accept broader disparities of social outcome than liberals are and are inclined to look upon the multiplication of entitlements, which liberals define as enhancing the public good, as inimical to the public good because they encourage attitudes and aptitudes subversive of the virtues necessary for a free society. Now, that's, that's the argument as it is today. But there is within that a big gray area as to what constitutes the necessary, fair, and equal distribution of social capital that enables people to be self-sufficient and socially competent and therefore confident enough to insist upon and make use of freedom. That, to me, is the political argument today. And I have—I can't answer it in the the next ten minutes. I've been—I've been working on it for forty years, and we'll work on it for as many more years as I have. It's an unending—it's an unending conversation. But that's basically what the conversation, as I understand it, is, and what I think your question was, sir. So, put my, Michael Lane. Put fairness aside. What about rights? I'm interested in your view about the role of government to guarantee rights, or rights seem to be manufactured these days. And is there a, a minimum level of rights, whether it's life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, uh, whether it's uh, education and health care, whether it's a uh, right to assembly, right of free speech, etc.? Uh, a view, and I think it's probably the Cato Institution view, is that government does not exist to solve problems. It exists to protects pre, protect pre-existing rights. And that, that, I mean, that's the severe. Have I got it right? Okay, that's good. That's a, I mean, that's the, that's the severe classic liberal uh, Hobbes Locke notion of what government is for. We've moved a fair piece beyond that, and frankly, we're not going back. Uh, James Q. Wilson, at whose feet I sit, world's brightest social scientist. Uh, has made the observation that government nowadays does not do anything new because it cannot do anything new because it's already done, involved itself in everything. Not just who gets what, when and how, but where people live, how they should feel. Government's involved literally in everything. I defy you to think of something government is not today involved in. So the idea, working backwards that we're going to get back to the idea of a government of limited, delegated, and enumerated powers for the sole purpose of protecting pre-existing rights is fanciful. Now, that doesn't mean it's not a valid lodestar from which we should take our bearings, because we're going to all operate, those of us inclined with a libertarian dimension, we're all going to operate in a climate of a fallen world, if you will. But uh, there it is. That's the world we have. And the American people, for all the virtues that I just enumerated, are not with us on that. 
They think the government and the, the government in this town, first of all, not last of all, exists to solve problems. Sir. Yeah. My name is Darren Beatty. Um, I thought it was interesting that at the outset of your talk, you said that it was one of your beliefs that ideas matter. And in fact, in the long run, or ultimately, ideas are the only thing that matter. But then I seemed that you gave a qualification to that, or at least complicated it afterwards by saying that sensibility and temperament um, precedes philosophy and ideas. It conditions what ideas you're receptive to. Go ahead. Correct. And, and so I was hoping you could help elaborate the possible contradiction between those views and also comment on whether you think the current election is one of sensibility or one of ideology, because it seems to me that both McCain and Obama are very much men of, of sensibilities and certain temperaments rather than really men of ideas. First, as to the connection between sensibility and ideology, all I would say is that, that sensibility, which I said precedes ideology, um, it involves a sort of basic stance toward the world, basic confidence, a basic sense of how history works or doesn't work, uh, a basic uh, fascination with or imperviousness to the complexity and inertia of events in the world, all of that. Uh, there's a long, big, broad continuum, and we all fall at some point along that, and I think the conservatives tend to be, ought to be, more preoccupied by inertia and uncertainty, the great sense that society is like a Calder mobile. You touch something here and things jiggle over there. And, and, and it's a cautionary stance toward life. And I think, I tend to think that this precedes our ideas and conditions the ideas we find plausible. Uh, this is an empirical question. I'm just asserting it, uh, uh, my conclusion about it. I don't have... Uh, Data, and I'm not sure how you'd get data on that, which precedes which. I'm sure it's a tangle, but uh, you, some of you who are philosophically inclined will hear in what I'm saying a kind of echo of Michael Oakeshott and the idea of, of politics as a practice, as something that uh, you, you're immersed in for a very long time and you develop something like judgment, which is like Potter Stewart's definition of pornography. You know it when you see it. And there's not a whole lot more you can say about it in the abstract. Uh, with regard to this election, this is very much a sensibility election because a John McCain candidacy is a kind of gestalt, veteran, honorable, honor-driven, um, straight-talking fella. It's a, it's, a, it's a whole constellation of virtues, if such they are. Uh, Obama is more like that than people realize because I mean, the, the rhetorical cotton candy although fun to eat is not nourishing and it, uh, <laughs> it it doesn't give you much of a guide except that he's exceedingly confident uh, about the ability of good intentions uh, filtered through government to produce good works now I happen to think John McCain is also convinced of that 
that uh, the problem with government is that honorable people haven't been involved, too many corrupt people involved and all that stuff, that in that sense, the difference between Obama and McCain are, 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 are the difference is not as broad as one would wish. <laughs> Sir. Mr. Will, uh, my name is Tom Frank. I'm here from the uh, state of Maryland, a uh, somewhat democratic state, Anne Arundel County, Maryland. I wanted to ask you a question about education. Uh, first, it's a real pleasure to, to listen to you speak. Um, I'd like to essentially ask you, where do you see education going in, in, in this country? Um, you might want to comment about this uh, federal law, No Child Left Behind, uh, in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, our school system did everything they could to get rid of a charter school. Um, um, I uh, have an engineering company and uh, believe in diversity and uh, recently hired a Ph.D. student from the University of Maryland uh, who was not born in this country. Her mentor was from uh, Turkey, and her six students that are working on PhDs in electrical engineering, none of them are American citizens. Uh, lastly, I want to remind you of what you've said about, as I recall, education, that uh, kids do well based on the number of parents at home and the amount of reading material. So where are we going with regard to education in this country? I, I, I won't talk about education other than K through 12. In higher education, I believe, as you know, in diversity and everything but thought. And... Um, it's uh, hopeless until we, until the baby boomers die. Uh, the, uh, with regard to education grades K through 12, the problem of reform is that the Democratic parties, uh, one of its two, the other being the trial lawyers, great uh, sources of support and wealth are public employees and particularly the teachers unions at a normal democratic convention I don't know in Denver but I imagine it's this one in ten delegates or alternates will be public school teachers no, so they're not going to change uh, the way to change education is what Arizona flirted with at one point uh, and that is a system in which the money follows the child don't have to use the V word, don't have to say vouchers, but just uh, the money follows the child, and the child goes to a school, the school gets the money. And you get their competition, and uh, what, uh, if, what competition works everywhere, and it ought to work in education. Uh, the only remaining serious civil rights problem in this country concerns the non-education of inner-city children. And there we come to the fact that there is no reform at all that will make a particle of difference as long as 69% of African-American children are born out of wedlock. You will constantly have the experience of the Chicago teacher who said she routinely gets seven-year-olds coming to her school who do not know names, shapes, or colors. That No one while making dinner ever turned to the child and said, here are three green round peas. These are children raised in a culture of silence. Uh, in homes without uh, fathers and with exhausted mothers. I remember visiting a school on the far west side of Chicago, public school, devoted teachers, brave students. Uh, teachers said, we'll do anything for our children, except we never send homework home. Because, they said, 85% of our children go home at night to be the parents of their siblings. I don't have time for homework. And until you solve that, 
you can't begin to address the problem that, to which you referred, which is it, it was from Phil Barton, I think, at the ETS. He said, after abundant research, well, to go back to 1966, I believe it was, uh, the Coleman Report is issued, the biggest social science project in the history of this country. Pat Moynihan was back at Harvard at the time, and someone came up to him at a party and said, Pat, have you heard what Coleman's finding out? It's all families. It's all families. Which is to say that the differences between schools can largely be explained by about four variables. Quantity and quality of reading matter in the home, amount of television watched in the home, amount of homework done in the home, and far the most important, the number of parents in the home. When that is not addressed, uh, you have... um, Uh, schools devoting 85% of their time to maintaining order and the best teachers become burnouts and go into investment banking. Uh, There is a small revolution underway, and I'm going to a school in Oakland next Tuesday that's part of this, called the New Paternalism. And it's charter schools where they teach people how to behave. It's the broken windows theory applied to education. The broken windows theory of James Q. Wilson and Skelling was when you have a broken window, if you don't fix it, you'll have lots of broken windows because the broken window uh, gives an aura of disorder and of indifference, and people respond to that badly. The broken windows theory applied to uh, schools is if your shirt isn't tucked in and you're not wearing a school uniform, and you don't say sir to the teachers, and you're not polite to your classmates, uh, chaos metastasizes. And it works. There there are schools all over the country where this new paternalism, the phrase comes from a fine sociologist, Lawrence Mead, um, works. Just just teaching, giving people social capital. And um, so the, 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 there are hopes for nibbling at the margin on this. But the big reforms, competition in which the money follows the children, uh, it's, it's, it's a hard road to, to uh, climb. Sir. Gerald Schneider, Kensington, Maryland. Mr. Will, what do you think about the term addiction originally confined to physiological dependence being extended to all kinds of social problems? Well, it's, a, it's the medicalization of social problems that uh, has grown as the capacities of medicine have grown. And the ability to treat things pharmacologically has, has spurred this on. Now, obviously, addiction becomes almost a metaphor at some point. Uh, uh, Wade Boggs, the third baseman, is said to have a sex addiction. And uh, people, I guess, do have that. Um, who knows? Um, uh, but beyond that, I can't say. I mean, the, the, the addiction is more complicated and doubtless comes in more permutations than we at one point realized, having to do with the chemistry of the brain, about which we're learning lots by leaps and bounds. But... Uh, Beyond that, I don't know what there is to say. Obviously, you can be careless about it, and it can be a category that subverts the very concept of personal responsibility and the very meaning of choice. And once you strike at the very capacity, it raise doubts about the capacity of individuals to literally know and literally make up their own minds, uh, 
you have struck at the roots of free government. So the issues, the stakes of the argument about this are enormous, but uh, the very fact that we might like to preserve clarity by saying all these these uh, descriptions of behavior as addictions is, uh, is false, I'm not sure we can say that yet. It's going to be more cloudy than that, I'm afraid. Sir. My name is Steve Hank, and I wanted to ask you this question for a while. Um, I know Barry Goldwater always called himself a conservative, and uh, I think he was he was a libertarian. I know you call yourself a conservative, but I, in reading a lot of your columns, I'd probably label you more of a libertarian. But what I my question to you is. I've tried very hard to understand exactly what is a conservative. <laughs> I mean, I've Googled the word, and I, I'm honestly telling you I don't know exactly what a conservative is. Well, um, just one, one – I know Ronald Reagan has, is famous for saying, well, the essence of being a conservative is being a libertarian. But to my way of thinking, they are quite different, and I wonder if you could tell me one – are, do you consider yourself a libertarian? And two, could you define uh, what is a conservative? No, no, the modern conservative movement in America has been defined by the tension between the communitarian social conservatives, those who believe in statecraft as soulcraft, title of a book I wrote, read by dozens, um, <laughs> that, uh, and those who are libertarians who say government exists to protect pre-existing rights, to hold the ring and get out of the way. Uh, and there's a tension there. And I think any sensible person has strands of both, powerful tugs from both sides. Uh, being a conservative in America has been famously puzzling to Europeans because to them conservatism rooted in its background, as a conservative ought to insist, and the background there is feudalism, established religion, and a class structure, of which three we have none in this country to speak of. Uh, and therefore, we take our bearings as conservatives from an, a whole different predicate. Uh, that said, uh, I, I guess I, I would say that to be a, a properly a conservative, and I'm, I'm, again, we're speaking in the Hayek room, the last chapter, I guess, the last chapter of the Constitution of Liberty is why I'm not a conservative. He was a, what used to be called a Manchester liberal, uh, a belief in minimal government and maximum freedom. Uh, I don't think that's um, a satisfactory political philosophy. I think it's more complicated than that. It's a satisfying political philosophy because it answers all questions with one gulp. But uh, it's not satisfactory because, because as – and I keep citing my old friend Pat Moynihan. Pat used to say, you conservatives know one thing, and for Pat that was sometimes a concession. He said, you know that the culture of a society more than the politics of a society determines the success of the society. And if you're not careful, the politics of the society will have a deleterious effect on the culture. Uh, uh, I have um, gone through what uh, Ed, Ed, with curled lip, calls my Hamiltonian moment uh, with statecraft to soulcraft, uh, and I have uh, had a recoil toward libertarianism, for which I can thank John McCain and McCain-Feingold, which um, 
truly shocked me if someone had told me 20 years ago that the government would assert, the Congress would assert and the Supreme Court would ratify the right of the Congress to ration political speech to regulate the quantity, content, and timing of political speech about the legislature, I, would have, I wouldn't have believed it. And so I, I recoil a bit. And then, you know, it's a, politics is... Political philosophy is complaint. I mean, no, no one's happy when they sit down to write political philosophy. I mean, Machiavelli went in and sat down in his robes and fantasized about a better Italy. And Hobbes, recoiling from the turmoil of, of England of his day, wrote about how to establish sovereignty. And I mean, everyone, political philosophy arises from a reflective recoil from discontents. And my discontents change as the years go by. Quickly, yes. I mean, to my mind, uh, conservatives and liberals are, are much alike compared to libertarians because they both believe that there's a role for government um, with regard to imposing certain values. They just have different values, whereas the libertarians believe... You, you let me, let me, I got it. Let me quarrel with your use of the verb impose, imposing certain values. Obviously, uh, the subtitle of my neglected masterpiece, Statecraft is Soulcraft, was what, was what government does. Not what government should do, but what government cannot help but do. I take it as self-evident that we have to have a government. And I take it as equally self-evident that government will nurture, affirm, discourage, and prescribe certain behaviors. I just baked in the cake. So in that sense, of course, uh, you can say, well, we're all like the Nazis. I mean, the Nazis and John Stuart Mill had, um, were interested in certain values and the promotion of certain values, including the use of the law and the government to promote certain values. But when you have a distinction that sweeps Mill and Goebbels into the same stew, you got the wrong distinction. You're starting in the wrong place. Uh, I, there's an interesting new book out called Nudge by Cass Sunstein and an economist also from Chicago called Thaler. Thayer? Thaler, okay, I wrote a column about it. I don't know his name. Uh, they're both uh, advisors in an informal and sporadic way to Barack Obama, and it's a, an intelligent book. They said, look, there, there's a, something called choice architecture. And um, uh, how you structure the environment in which choices are made has a difference. Obvious policy example. If you make enrollment, automatic enrollment of employees in 401k programs the default position, but allow people, A, people can get out and there's no cost to getting out, no serious cost. They just have to make a choice. You find that enrollment in 401ks goes up. Savings rate goes up, people become more self-sufficient, less demanding perhaps of government, Things, good things happen. Uh, they call it libertarian paternalism. That probably makes your teeth ache, but uh, uh, that's what they call it. It's good, a good book. I recommend it. Everyone ought to read it or read the Will column, luminous distillation of it. Um, but uh, see, it's just too simple to say there some people believe in the government 
you use the word imposing, I'm quarreling with that, the government encouraging certain values. And in, in all governments, indeed, mandate certain values. The Constitution of the United States mandates respect for promise-keeping. It's called contracts. We have time for two uh, more questions. If we're going to have George sign yep, some uh, right. books upstairs, we've got to get going. Hi, Dave McAlpine. My question is also about education, and that is that uh, when the baby boomers die, die off, I think they'll have left behind generations of kids who, instead of being taught the math and science, are being taught social thought. And if they are at home with parents who have been taught that as well, they'll be teaching that to their children. How do you see getting out of that bumper crock? The, the, the longer they're in through college, it gets even worse. I understand. And, and at some point, you know, there's no substitute for parents who care about the education of their children. And obviously, you have uneducated parents. You're going to get uneducated children and this uh, infinite regress here. I don't know what the answer is. I remember I live in the People's Republic of Montgomery County. And long ago, someone running for the school board ran an ad on the radio saying, if I am elected, the schools of Montgomery County will begin to produce Beethovens and Einsteins. We in Montgomery County would be pleased if, upon leaving school, our children had heard of Beethoven. Uh, but there, there simply is no substitute for demanding quality. One last question. Way in back. Yeah, I've neglected you folks. Go ahead. Take the microphone. Uh, Dan Cronin, uh, do you think the gay marriage ban in California will pass this fall or not? I haven't a clue. Uh, I mean, I, 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 my feeling is that that uh, that issue, like a lot of the social issues, has gone off the boil. I assume the people of California have all studied Jonathan Rauch's book on the subject. Um, I may be mistaken, um, but uh, I think this is a. There are certain social problems go away as generations go away. I think uh, people my daughter's age, she's 28, think being gay is like being left-handed. It's boring. And uh, I think there's a, uh, again, we can argue about whether or not that's a good thing. I'm just, you, you asked a factual question, a predictive question, and I'm suggesting that uh, the answer over time to the question about gay rights is already apparent. Thank you. Thank We, uh, George is going to go out this way, so don't hang around to talk to him. He'll be upstairs in a few minutes. Uh, we were able to get this book at retail, and we'll pass the savings along to you. And uh, so be sure, be sure and get it. Uh, this is a great book, by the way. There are more references in it to Babe Ruth than to Barack Obama and John McCain <laughs> combined. Anyway, buy the book, and thanks for coming.